This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to this edition to the Urantia Radio Podcast. It's uh, Jim Watkins here, and I am so always grateful and humbled that you take the time to listen to these podcasts. And we're talking about a revelation of epical importance and relevance to our world because it is spiritual truth. And the Urantia book, which has been around for uh, almost 100 years, I think we're going on 90 years, uh, has uh, been given to us as a gift from our unseen friends, our angelic cousins of the Spirit, uh, through their agencies, have delivered this wonderful book, 2,000 pages of pure wisdom, over a million words, and it's all about improving our relationship with our spiritual creator, God, and also getting to know all of the cast and characters of his divine and wonderful uh, kingdom we know as our universe. And, uh, and I wanted to spend a little bit of time because we don't really talk to too many people about the origins of the Arantia book, but it is in, invariably the number one question that always comes up. Uh, and we're, uh, I think, not, uh, almost 100 episodes in or close to it. So every once in a while, it's great to do a reset and reintroduce to people who may not necessarily know the origins of the book. And I kind of want to do a narration and put it into my own words. I've talked to uh, two people who have written extensive uh, historical uh, origins of the Urantia book, Larry Mullins, and also this other gentleman whose name escapes me. uh, Oh, I know, Ernest Moyer. Uh, it was a long time ago when I spoke, spoke to Ernest when his birth of a divine revelation and the history of the Urantia book from Larry Mullins. And I also had the wonderful privilege of talking to some early Urantians and uh, some of whom have passed. Uh, but I had three occasions to talk with Dr. Meredith Sprunger at length, two times on my national radio show back in the late 90s and early aughts, and then also uh, a third time, I think, he did an interview with uh, someone that I worked with by the name of Jeff Rents, who did a show back in the uh, 2005, that period. Anyway, so I've had a lot of opportunity to do a ton of research, and everybody has a different story, but I was watching, <laughs> oddly enough, I was watching something on the History Channel the other day. You may have seen it. You know, they do these historical accounts of famous people, the men who built America, you know, things like that, right? So they had a special marathon of different stories of people who built the various food industries, like they did a whole four hours on uh, Hershey and and how Hershey built his chocolate empire. And uh, then they did a... Another full hour on the guy who invented Coca-Cola, 
and how that Coca-Cola formula ended up into the hands of someone who would go on to take up, take on the soft uh, drink world and you know just but along the way you also learn about these really cool interesting tidbits and you get a picture of what America was like but one of the sections that they did was on Kellogg's now a lot of people may not realize this but you know the Kellogg brand you know cornflakes the uh, nephew of the man who and I think his name was John had a brother whose name was Will William well, William's son is Wilfred Kellogg, and Wilfred Kellogg, the nephew of the man who introduced Kellogg's cornflakes to the world, which was William, not John, because John had no interest in selling his formula. He was a doctor, and he made he was on the right track. It's a very interesting story. If you get a chance to see it, it was on History Channel. If you get an opportunity, and it's all about the two brothers— well, part of the show is about all of the people of that era, but when they focus on the story of the two brothers, the doctor brother came up with this idea that nutrition was a great way to treat mental illness. Can you believe that? That's funny because doctors today still don't embrace that philosophy, that nutrition can help cure or at least alleviate some mental illness. Anyway, so... What he did was he would feed his patients this cereal that was crunched up oats or crunched up um, other, you know, natural products, nuts and grains, basically. And they, he would serve it to them as breakfast with milk in them. And so they loved it. Well, his brother tried to convince the doctor, hey, we could make millions on this. Well, one of the patients, a guy by the name of Post, actually stole the idea and went out and started the Post Cereal Company. So if you look back in history, you'll see that the Post Cereal country, uh, Company was in, in play before the Kellogg's came to market with their product. And their product was the cornflake, which they discovered accidentally, actually the brother did, William, Accidentally, because he was trying to salvage a bunch of, of of grains that had been left out all night, and they had become, I guess, dry or something. So he put him under a furnace, and it popped the corn into flakes. And so corn flakes was born. And he convinced his brother. Tragically, his brother's entire uh, sanitarium in Battle Creek had burnt down. And at that time, his brother was very vulnerable, and William came to him and said, look, I'll give you a check for $10,000 if you'll allow me to take your cornflakes and go create a cereal brand that we'll make millions on. And so he agreed to do that. Now, why is all of this important, right? Well, it's important because Wilfred is the son of William Kellogg, and Wilfred was a great friend of Dr. William Sadler. Now it has come to light through various writings, if you know anything about the historology of the Arantia book, one of the stories is who was the sleeping subject. And now it's been long inferred that the sleeping subject was a stockbroker, 
or somehow was working in finance in the Chicago Stock Exchange. And that's all we really know about him. But it has also been speculated that Wilfred Kellogg and his wife, who were really good friends with Dr. Lena Sadler and Dr. William Sadler in the 1900s, that they were also a part of the early times when the sleeping subject would talk about the things that eventually became the Arantia Revelation. Now, I don't know if you know the story, but it's a great one. So Dr. William Sadler, back in the, and this will be a five-minute story. Back in the 1900s in Chicago, Chicago was a thriving metropolis. It was really the center of America. In many ways, it rivaled New York. The I think it was the 1893 World's Fair is when they actually showcased electricity, when Westinghouse showcased electricity for the first time in the Edison light bulb. Anyway, so it was a very culturally diverse and interesting city. And Dr. William Sadler and his wife were very accomplished uh, medical doctors, and they were also teachers, I believe, at Northwest University. And they were very philanthropic, and so they divested a lot of their energies into the social scene at the time. And one of the things that Dr. William Sadler was very well known at the time of that period in American history, well, before television and radio, people were very entertained by the mystic. And there was a lot of magical, like Houdini. Uh, magic was a real big vaudeville act. And there were a lot, and also in that period, there were also a lot of strange new, sort of new new religions that were coming about. And it was also the age where people were getting getting into seances, and and ha performing seances and things like this. And Dr. Sadler was a was staunchly against all of that. He he thought that all of that was he he could disprove or he could he could discredit any anybody who said that they were a magician. And he didn't like channeling, and he was totally against, you know, people like Edgar Casey. And so he would always debunk these people and show that what they were doing was simply a magic trick, an illusion. Well, at some point during, and he was also a psychiatrist as well as a medical doctor. So he was a very influential man, and he was waiting for his home to be built on Diversity Parkway, which is where the current Urantia Foundation is in uh, Chicago or just outside of Chicago. And uh, and while he was waiting for his home to be built, uh, he was residing, I believe it was across the street, and there was a woman who had a, uh, a husband who would sleep at night, and he would wake up, and he would start rambling and moving about. And the story goes is that this woman came to Dr. Sadler and said, can you help me because my husband is acting quite erratic. So... He went to visit the husband, and through the late night, he saw this behavior in front of him. And then the next day, when he met with the same person, he would explain to the husband, well, your wife brought us over, and we just want to examine you and make sure you're okay. And so the husband said, well, I don't really feel bad. Nothing's wrong with me. And Dr. Sadler ran him through some simple tests to make sure he was physically fit and everything checked out. But these late-night Events continued for decades, and Sadler was never able to figure out what was wrong with this man. But during those events, multiple voices would come through and communicate with Dr. Sadler and his wife. 
And in the history books, it shows that Dr. or not Dr., but Wilfred Kellogg and his wife were also present. And they were really good friends. So now we introduce the Kellogg element, right? So when I'm watching this TV show on history and I'm thinking of William Kellogg, I'm saying to myself, God, everybody that's watching the, watching the show has no idea that Wilfred Kellogg of the Kellogg Empire is related to the fifth epical revelation in one way or another. Now, it has been surmised that there would have been no reason for the Kelloggs to be in these sessions with Dr. Sadler and the sleeping subject. And so that's why they think that maybe that's just a cover, and it was really Wilfred who was speaking to Dr. Sadler and telling him that there was such thing as, you know, spiritual enterprise and all of the things that they talked about. And Anyway, that led to the eventual appearance of the Urantia book, and I'll tell you why. So it's around 1917, and, and it doesn't, you know, in the big picture, it doesn't matter if it was Wilfred Kellogg. It's a great story, uh, but it's not necessary for the revelation. It just happened to be whoever the sleeping subject at one point during all of this late-night therapy, Dr. Sadler uh, was approached by the subject, and the subject said, you know, if you would start asking some serious questions, you could get a lot of information. This is a very unusual event, and you actually have access to a lot of information. So Sadler took that challenge, and he later, I guess it was maybe a week or so, he uh, was having a social gathering at his home, which he did frequently with various professionals and people in the neighborhood. By now, he was living in his new home at uh, Diversity Parkway, and he was having a conversation about some of his subjects. And during the course of the conversation, someone who was in attendance to the sun Sunday gathering said, well, tell us more about this subject. And that's when Sadler said, well... I can't explain why he speaks at night continuously, and I don't understand how he can be so seemingly possessive of all this wonderful knowledge, but yet he doesn't remember any of it. And and, it, and the claim is that it that there's some sort of a portal or some sort of a uh, an entry point where people on the other side of the universe are able to communicate, not through channeling, not through anything that would be explained or what you might see on, like, you know, the Long Island medium. These were bona fide vocal conversations that were occurring, you know, over a period of nights, over a period of decades. And so Sadler gave everybody on that social setting. He gave them all a little cards and said, why don't we all take on this challenge? And why don't you write the most important question you have in your life? What is the most important question we could ever know? So he got the cards back from all of his attendees and he put them in a desk drawer, uh, sorted them out. And the story goes that a few weeks later, even before going and seeing the subject, the wife of the subject called and said, come on over, I got something you got to see. And so this is probably about 19, I'm guessing 1924, something like that. And she and Dr. Sadler and Dr. Lena Sadler go over to the patient's home and they find that there's a stack of papers, 57 
Or maybe they were the first five papers of the Urantia Papers. And that's how the book started. And they were answers to those questions that Sadler had received from his, his uh, Sunday afternoon social. And they were the first five papers having to do with God. And so I assume that Sadler had further communications and with the sleeping subject, and the sleeping subject said, yes, we're ready to answer your questions. And that began the forum, which is a group of 70 people who were part of the Q&A for, gosh, maybe 15, 20 years. And it was from that process. Now, we don't know if the sleeping subject wrote automatic handwriting. Sadler says no. We, don't, we do know that the subject's handwriting is not of the same handwriting, nor is the wife's, and there was a handwriting analysis done. All that Sadler knows is that over a period of time, the, the unseen friends, as I like to refer to them, were writing answers to the questions that the forum had, and it eventually became the first three sections of the Urantia book. And it is said that the uh, the spirit intelligences that were involved would watch the people, the 70, as they would review this material and they would evaluate whether they were making the points. And so there would be revisions. And so the revisions continued and the book continued to grow paper after paper until around 1942. But at some point in the... No, no, let me backtrack. Not 1942, 1934. And then the process was done. And then suddenly, on one occasion, the fourth part of the book, The Life and Teachings of Jesus, all came at once. And Sadler was told through this sleeping subject that this was a gift of the Midwayers. And the Midwayers, if you know are a super physical being that actually are the permanent citizens of our fair world and they're the helpers of the angels. And they were they were there when Christ was born and so they have 700 pages of his life in which his whole life and his teachings are retold. And that comprises the fourth part of the Arantia Papers. And so that is the story. So no one knows who wrote it no one knows who hand wrote it. We, we know that it was during a period when Dr. Sadler was having conversations and sessions with his sleeping subject. And there's a lot we don't know. And there's a reason that we don't know it. The revelators made it clear through their communications with Dr. Sadler and the group, presumably, that they didn't want any particular human to be involved or in relation to this book. They swear sw uh, uh, allegiance. They swore allegiance. And the actual sleeping subject was never revealed. And it was said that after the book was completed, the sessions ended, and the subject resumed his normal life, unchanged. So there's the story, a non-exciting story, because they wanted it that way. They didn't want to to form another religion from some spectacular event. They wanted to introduce, I'm taking it, into the, the bloodstream of humanity 
a revelation so that over time it would grow. And it has. It's almost 20 years. If we reckon that around 1924, you know, we're, we're a mere few years away from when this communication started to eventuate into a, a what we call a revelation. And there has to date been no claim of authorship. Um, I believe it's been disputed in court, so there's no ownership of the book. It's it's in, in the public domain. Your Rancho book, I think, reserves the right to the original copy, uh, but I've heard that the original copy doesn't even exist anymore, which is strange. But they do have the original book of the original text. I think they have four of them. If I'm not mistaken, you'd have to call the foundation and verify. But that is the story of the Arantia Revelation. It's not an exciting one, uh, but there's good reason for that, because they don't want the miracle to outshine the information. So I wanted to share that with you. It's, it's, a, it's a brief summary. It only took us 15 minutes, and now at least you have a clear picture. You might be disappointed. Uh, it would have been more spectacular, perhaps, if the book had been found under a tree, uh, but would it have stood up to uh, scrutiny? That's the question. It stands on its own merits. That's been the argument since the very beginning. Uh, you can look and read and make your own evaluation. One thing we have learned is that it, it proves itself time and time again every time there's a new discovery about man's ancient past. And that itself, that in and of itself, is indicative of its authority. And that's where we'll leave it this time up. The brief narration of the Arantia Revelation, this time up on the Arantia Radio Podcast. I'm Jim Watkins. Follow us online. We love seeing you. Click in and read our commentary and follow us at urantiaradio.net. And of course, this podcast is on Apple, Spotify, and all the major podcast producers. God bless. We'll see you again.